0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is John Rental, biographer of Tony Blair, writer of some fantastic books, politics and non-politics, but also someone who's been consulted for the new BBC series Blair and Brown, The New Labour Revolution. If you haven't started watching it yet, what is the matter with you? It is brilliant television. And I'm not just saying that because obviously I have a deep interest in the era and political TV. It is so well made. And the interviews with Blair, with Brown, with Mandelson, with Campbell, with so many others, are superb. And it brings that era. It's really well made. It's not just a nostalgia trip. It's really good analysis. Very, at times, emotionally honest. It's the drama of it It is great. So you have to watch that. So I've been meaning to get John on for a long time. And I always like to get guests on... Uh, around something vaguely relevant if possible, and obviously in politics there's always relevant stuff happening, but the moment I saw that I thought, now's my chance to get John Rental on, because his biography of Tony Blair, Tony Blair Prime Minister, um, is brilliant. I think I got it for my 18th birthday party, along with John Major's autobiography. Two great books, which I really enjoyed. But it's what's great about his biography of Tony Blair. is comprehensive. It's a proper big read, but it's also an entertaining read. It's not a hard going, tedious thing. Its it, magnificence is its quality in both its depth and its readability. So, in a way, it's almost like getting someone on whose album I bought when I was a kid because I always loved that book and and followed John ever since. And he does some more light hearted output as well. Um, but crucially, um, He and his colleague, uh, John Davies, run a course at uh, at King's College on the Blair years. So this is someone who, as well as being a biographer of Tony Blair, um, is also an academic, is also teaching that period in in modern British history. Uh, In fact, John Davies and John Rental have a book, The Blair Government Reconsidered Heroes or Villains, which I think has probably been um, quite an influence on the series and they, they came to see uh, well, we talk about that. They, they come and see um, the two Johns um, deliver some of their course. So this is someone who is uh, deeply immersed in that time and, and what it meant uh, and, and it's relevance. So uh, th- this is a great chat. Don't forget, you can email the show, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com with strange, tedious, odd. I mean, just if you've seen a politician out and about, let us know. Spotted! Well... <laughs> Gillian has been in touch. She said, I'm not sure if this counts, but I once bumped into Siobhan McDonough in Sainsbury's in Tooting. We both had shopping trolleys. Um, the reason she says it's I'm not sure if it counts is because I know her encounter as a friend. <laughs> well, it still counts. Believe it or not, Gillian, politicians have friends. Well, you should believe it. You are, you are one of the friends of, of one of the politicians. Siobhan McDonagh is someone I need to get on the show, actually, so that's a very helpful reminder. Um, have you ever seen a politician in the supermarket what were they buying? Email the show, politicalpartypodcast at com. You can come and see the show live as well. Thank you to all of you who came to the Andy Burnham Show. What a night it was. He was such a good guest. It's so uh, much more of a night to do them live, obviously, because there's so much more work goes into it. Um, but to actually sit opposite someone instead of doing it on Zoom is it, it, obviously a more intense experience. So I've been really reflecting on it, and I just thought in so many ways he was the perfect guest because uh, he was funny, he was thoughtful, he was emotional. You know, it had uh, some great ad libs, great politics, great behind the scenes stuff. I just thought, oh man, what a great uh, show that was! And the next show is on Monday, the 11th of October. So, depending on when you listen to this, in just a couple of days' time, with Penny Morden, who I, oh my God, such a fun politician and I can't wait to talk to her. She was the first ever woman to be Defence Secretary in the UK uh, and just has a really great sense of humour as well as being a very serious politician. But again, you think they're the sort of perfect knights where it's someone really funny as well as someone who can do the serious stuff as well. So tickets for that are available in the link or just go to mattford.com slash live. I've also put links in the blurb to uh, John, a couple of John's books. Um, so without further ado, um, one of the first political authors I ever got into, John Rental. <music> Delighted to be joined by John Rental, biographer of Tony Blair, indeed biographer of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, I guess we'll talk about that, Who, whose work really has provided so much of the... Um, underpinning, I suppose, of the new fantastic Blair Brown series on the iPlayer. So, John, how much credit can you take
2: for this fantastic series? It's all my own work. Um, <laughs> no, uh, hard, hardly any, to be honest, Matt. I mean, look, the uh, the BBC approached us, or at least the production team approached us because they wanted to follow up their, uh, their Margaret Thatcher, uh, the Thatcher revolution, Uh, documentary which is done in the same style you know no commentary just uh, interviews and uh, archive footage Uh, and they wanted to do the same thing with Tony Blair so you know uh, John Davis and I uh, who you know we teach this course uh, at King's King's College London on the Blair government Uh, I suppose we were the logical people to go to so we talked to them a lot about it and actually one of the production team came and sat in on one of our classes um, I can't remember who we had talking to us that week. it might have been Michael Barber or somebody like that, uh, but anyway, they came and sat in and sat in the class and uh, then they went off and we helped them with uh, you know getting in touch with people uh, but apart from that it was all either you know, the interviews were all conducted by the uh, by Steve Condy and his his team uh, and the archive research was all theirs and that it's the interviews combination of the interviews and the archive research I think which makes those programs so special
1: and uh, you, you don't just teach this course you've written a book heroes or villains the Blair government reconsidered how much of a basis do you think that provides a, a kind of framework for the series
2: well I mean that was that was another reason why they uh, they wanted uh, us to be involved um, because I mean that's the book of 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 the course in a sense trying to trying to pursue the same thing that we were trying to do in the course I mean the course actually started uh, a year after Tony Blair stood down as prime minister. Uh, it started in 2008. So it was ultra contemporary history when it started. But the reason it started uh, is, is the thing that's been driving us throughout, is the feeling that uh, you know people's uh, attitudes towards the Blair government had curdled so much towards the end uh, that they were obscuring the truth, which was the, the, you know, that actually it was it was on balance, quite an effective government. It achieved a lot of great things. Uh, and yet this was all being swept aside by the myth of uh, uh, of, of the warmonger Blair and uh, PFI. For some reason, PFI just just has a sort of magical hold on, uh, on young left-wing activists these days, as if it was some sort of uniquely evil uh, scheme to uh, conspire against them, the universe and everything. Um, but, you know, we felt that there was, there was a gap in the market for, for a rebalancing. And that's what the course was about. That's what the book was about. And we hope that that's what the TV programme is about, too. I've only seen two episodes so far.
1: All five are available on the iPlayer. And uh, obviously, <laughs> 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 I love any sort of you musical mean- documentary. But it's fantastic viewing. And it is, I guess, mainly because it's not just the nostalgia, but the principles. The individuals involved are so talented and they speak so well. Tony, Gordon... Yeah. Peter, Alistair, I mean, and all the others, Christopher Mayer, uh, 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 you know, um, um, Angie the, Hunter.
2: Angie Hunter, yes, Ed Balls. I mean, she's a terrific interviewee. Um, yeah, no, they're all, they're all amazing. And the civil servants as well. I mean, Richard Wilson, I think, is one of the unexpected stars. You know, That's cabinet was, secretary. That was the name I was um, asking for. You know, he's got, he's got these independently sprung eyebrows that offer a sort <laughs> of uh, offer a commentary on what he's saying while he's saying it. He's got a wonderful face. Uh, But he's also got a brilliant analysis of of how Tony Blair operated because he saw he saw it close up. Uh, And uh, he he had actually worked for Margaret Thatcher as well. So he's able to compare the two. Uh, Absolutely fascinating stuff.
1: What really strikes me watching it? And obviously I was sort of aware of this. But compared to really anyone apart from Thatcher. They are so much more intense about every area of politics. You know, that first episode where Tony and Gordon are talking about every night in their office, they would be having these deep dives into politics. And then just even on election night in 1997, the discipline to not get carried away, to always be saying, it looks like we've had a good night. I can't yeah. think of any political project since on this island that has had that, that, that marriage of super talent, exceptional political judgment and just the intensity about really
2: caring about how politics was done almost about the craft of it yes and and worrying about absolutely every aspect of it i mean and not taking anything for granted i mean that was the that was the thing it was incredibly disciplined although there was the, the 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 fracture at the heart of it between tony blair and gordon brown which which did at times um threaten to destabilize the whole thing but you know, they, their their discipline was astonishing, and Tony Blair was absolutely determined. I mean, it's so difficult to get back to that mindset. Although perhaps it's getting easier now that Labour's already you know, lost four elections again. Um, but it's quite difficult to remember how despairing people were after the nineteen ninety two election, when you know people thought that Neil Kinnock was going to win, uh, or at least. Be prime minister in a hung parliament, and that was all snatched away crowley at the last minute. And there was this feeling that Labour can never win, and that you had to you had to try, you know, you had to be ten times as good as the Tories uh, in order to just scrape an election win. And of course, I mean, I remember, I remember people. I mean, I remember Andrew Marr was editor of the, uh, the the Independent in 1997. I remember him saying he could feel I could feel it in my bones. He said I could feel the Tories coming back. And I said, look, look even if even as the opinion polls are it's it's totally wrong, even if they're far more wrong than they were last time, you know, I can assure you that you know, Labour is actually going to win this one. Uh, but, but, he, but Andrew Marr was sharing the attitude of the sort of core Labour team who just thought, you know, we are not going to take anything for granted. This, this, we can still lose this. We have to do everything uh, to make sure that we win it. And it's interesting
1: that actually because... You might say, well, that's just a logical reaction to four election defeats and specifically 92 and how that felt that they were robbed. Actually, other politicians still would not have handled that as well. They would have got carried away. If you look at other political parties and how they deal with success, they very quickly get drunk on it. They do tweet about their opinion poll ratings. Yeah. that. You know, if New Labour would have been in the the social media age. They would not have allowed that sort of thing. They would have been playing it down. It is also about the character of those individuals and the way that they understand the people and how that looks to a public.
2: Yes, absolutely, and and how seriously they take craft of politics. You're absolutely right. I mean, those, you know, that that team around Tony Blair was was exceptional. There's no question about it. You know, Alistair Campbell, uh, Peter Mandelson. Uh, Philip Gould, um, who, who's who's dead now, but I mean he was he was very, very important, um, and Angie Hunter and Sally Morgan, all of them were, you know, really really good at uh, at politics, and uh, and it's just it is really I hope it's highly educational to uh, today's Labour Party to see these people uh, reflecting on uh, on their successes.
1: Well, you can't. Take out the modern context when you're watching it. Four defeats, a lurch to the left, they become irrelevant. Uh, Labour leaders heckled at their conferences. You know, these things are always... Um, <laughs> when you watch a James Graham play like This House during the Theresa May years, you know, they, they're kind of... They're on at the moment because, they, I guess, they, they chime. Um, it's hard not to look at the Labour Party now and uh, draw parallels. And obviously, Tony Blair was so intense about winning, about doing everything yeah. possible... And you just wonder, looking at Labour now, whether they've they fully understood the lesson. In the same way. <laughs> you,
2: you you're trying to tell me they're not quite so intense, uh, man They're just. Well, uh, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to sound like an old, uh, you know, an old man who's sort of saying, "Oh, well, you know, there, there were some, there were some greats in those days, and uh, today's lot aren't up to up aren't up to the mark." I mean, I do remember, actually, at the time, I do remember thinking quite often that Tony Blair was. Was quite brittle. He was quite green. He was, he, 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 you know, he, he did, he did make mistakes, and he did seem to be quite unconfident uh, uh, some of the time. Uh, I mean, looking back, he looks like a sort of messianic, absolutely self-confident uh, figure. But that's not quite. That's not how he looked at the time, and 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 a lot of people around him seemed quite nervous and uh, uh, and not sure of uh, of quite what they were doing. I mean, you do tend to sort of rewrite uh history looking backwards but um i do think that they were a very talented team and i do think that there are you know there are not many people in the modern labour party who are up to that kind of caliber
1: it's very um you talk about you say sort of Piers green what's really interesting about episode one is the 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 moment that they his built hair. towards. yeah i mean just his general appearances until <laughs> it reaches the point where He is in the ascendant against Gordon. It's clear that he has to stand for the leadership. Actually, he starts to look more like a leader. He does start to... Some of the footage is really funny. I mean, I know everyone back then had mullets and bad jeans and whatever else, and I'm not a style icon. (laughs) But it is odd how he kind of does physically, visibly change a bit. He starts to dress and walk and cut his hair a bit more like a leader.
2: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I remember I was there at that time, at, at that time, I watched that transformation, but that's why I, I, I started to um, work on the book about him, because um, I was I was filming in his constituency for the BBC uh, in Sedgefield after the 92 election. Uh, and that was the moment when he suddenly got it. I mean, he suddenly he's you know, he suddenly changed from being Bambi to to to, to a leader. Um, and you know, I do think Angie Hunter was quite an important part of that because she put him in suits. she made sure he you know he never wore an overcoat, never carried his own his own luggage. he just looked like uh, someone who was uh, who was a leader. Uh, but I mean the more important part of that was that he he suddenly uh, discovered how to do television. I mean, he just suddenly o- almost overnight became... Uh, a, a supreme communicator of the television age. And he, just became, he just he just cut through on television in a way that that few politicians do. He just talked normal English that people could understand, and people would nod along to and say, "Yep, he's right." That's that's I'm glad glad to hear that from a Labour politician.
1: Yes, there is that moment in the wake of the ninety two defeat where he decides to do the TV rounds, yeah. and of course no one else wants to do it. But that's exceptional judgment on his part in the wake of that defeat to be the first voice that people hear from the Labour Party and to be a voice that he knows is going to be ultra modernising and to kind of seize that moment in a way that even John Smith didn't.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, I mean, you could say there was a, there was an element of desperation in it. He just thought, well, you know, that's it. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to be stuck here for, for, for forever unless, unless I t- start taking some risks unless I put myself out there and say what I really think. Um, and of course, you know, he wasn't quite as sort of risk-taking as that. I mean, Peter Mandelson once said that you know he 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 had an extraordinary attitude towards taking risks. He would prepare very carefully before taking a risk, and then and then jump off the cliff. Um, but there was an element of of Tony Blair just thinking, well, you know, sod it, I've just got to I've just got to go for it and 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 push the boundaries. Uh, and that's that's what happened after the 92 election. That's when he that's when the change. Change happened, and that's when I said, you know, I said to people, you know, this this guy's going to be prime minister one day, uh, and I'm going to write a book about him. And then, of course, uh, two years later, John Smith died, and I had to had to get on with it.
1: <laughs> you did, and it's a great book, and we'll talk about that book. It's it's one of my favourite biographies, um, <laughs> and I got it the moment it came out. But um, the uh, the quite course- you must have been in primary school at the time, Matt. Well, I oh so is that different? I got Tony Blair prime minister. Yeah, no, no. it First came out in two thousand and one, I suppose. Yes, that, I got that Yeah, that's right. That yeah, I, was, um, yeah. Yeah. I voted in two thousand and one. That was the first election. Oh, okay. I was I was, I was a bit older. I bought John Sopel's Tony Blair: The Moderniser when that came out as well. So, I, I
2: yeah, was no. Well, I wrote it. I wrote I wrote an original version of that book in in ninety five, um, which uh, at which time you were at school, I think. But yes, I uh, but the, the two thousand and one one was, was was much more substantial because, see, you know, by the time he became prime minister, there was just so much more to. Uh, right about well i'd love to ask you about that i just want to ask about
1: the course because do you find then that the you know by definition i guess students young people i'm sure you have the odd mature student as well are on the course because they are already pro or anti and and do you find that the course challenges them i mean do you feel like you're
2: rehabilitating what? the blair era uh oh well i hope so yes i mean i do think I, I do think we are yes i mean one of my favorite parts of the course is just to you know uh, at the first class is just to go around the class and ask people what they think of tony blair and what why they've chosen the course and what they hope to get out of it and then then uh, i repeat that exercise at the end and it's it, you know it's, it, it's interesting i mean you know i wouldn't say you know they're all they're all you know, skeptical at, st- at the start and then converted uh, Blairites by the end. But I mean, they, they certainly understand uh, Tony Blair much better. Uh, and and I, think, I think understanding his motives means that they have a, they have a much uh, richer appreciation of, uh, of, of what was going on. And the fact that, you know, he's not a sort of simple-minded villain, I mean, even if they still disagree with a lot of the things he did, they, they recognize that, you know, the motives were, were generally uh, honorable. And I think that's that's quite important. I mean, the, the thing about our students, of course, is, is, is that they get younger every year. I mean, when we started, they were they were uh, undergraduates who who'd, who'd been at primary school and benefited from the literacy and numeracy hour. Uh, and now, of course, they're graduate students who weren't even born while uh, Tony Blair was prime minister.
1: That's incredible, really, to think that that's all happened so quickly. <laughs> um, it is. It is
2: quite incredible. The passing of time is quite incredible, Matt. The um,
1: one of the great things about the about the telly show is just. I mean, it's a reminder. You know, people always get in touch with me when New Labour stuff's on the, on the you know, in the ether. I say, oh God, actually Tony Blair's really good, isn't he? And you're like, well, that was never really in doubt. His, his talent was never what people took exception with. But it's always just a reminder they go, Oh God, you know, they were the days. But that's also true of Gordon Brown. And whenever I see Gordon interviewed, I just think, oh my God, you know, the the, the kind of colossal heft that he represents, the gravitas, the, the the brain, the presence that he has really is very, very impressive. And to only see him through the lens of Tony and Gordon really does him a huge disservice because in his own right, he is a titanic Labour figure of immense talent. And, and, and the footage of him as a young man, you think, yeah. oh my God, you know, I mean, do you think, let's say uh, in the wake of John Smith's sad death that Gordon stands and Tony doesn't for whatever reason. Would, would Gordon Brown have won in 1997?
2: Well, yes. I mean, I think there is an argument that almost anybody Uh, Would have won in 1997. I mean, that's uh, uh, you know that is a the Conservatives had uh, had exhausted themselves. They were divided uh, on Europe and 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 they shredded their economic credibility in the ERM crisis, uh, which happened very soon after the '92 election. So in a sense, you know it was it you know it was foreordained that Labour were going to win, even if you know few Labour people could bring themselves to believe it because of the disappointment of the '92 to elections, so yeah. I mean, Gordon Brown could have won. I mean, if John Smith had lived, he would have, he would have won. I mean, the the, the argument about that is always, uh, you know, w- would they have won for for just one term and been out, uh, or would they have been able to sustain it for 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 two and you know, in, in Tony Blair's case, three terms? Um, and you know, I, I just don't think there's anybody other than Tony Blair who could have sustained that. I mean. You know, John Smith was committed to to joining the euro without a referendum. I think that would have been an absolute disaster if he tried it. I mean, he may, maybe he would have changed the policy uh, if he got into government, um, but I think he would have uh, he would have been a one term prime minister. I mean, uh, David Ward, uh, who used to work for him, says that you know, John Smith would have would have res- would have stood down as prime minister during that first term and handed over to Tony Blair, uh, which might have been a uh, uh, a, a way to a, a way to win the, the, the subsequent election. But, uh, you know, I do think history would have been very different.
1: Yeah, Labour leaders promising to stand down after a does like <laughs> <times. laughs> Doesn't always pan out the way that people might. <laughs> um, but do you think, so in 97 then, any old sort? I mean, would Ken Livingston have won? Would would Corbyn have won in 97? Or do you, would it have to have been at least well, of the modernising ill?
2: Well, I think you've got to you got to stay within the realms of uh, of, of, of reality. I mean, the, no, no, none of those were an option. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think John Smith or Gordon Brown, um, you know, the, the, or even say, someone say like Margaret Beckett or, or John Prescott. I mean, they were all serious frontline politicians uh, at the time. You know, Brian Gould. I mean, you know, before he went off to uh, to New Zealand and a half. Um, in, in 92 he 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 could have led the labor party to, to victory i mean there's no question about there's no question about that i think labor uh, i think labor were in a very good position and the conservatives were in a historically poor position uh, but, the, but the genius of tony blair was was to was to recognize that opportunity that historic opportunity and to exploit it to the max so the
1: biography you wrote of him, I'll put the link in, in the blurb because I know people like to buy the books that um, that we talk about on this show. And it is a fantastic biography. It is comprehensive. And I, I've still got That's the original. Very sweet of it. you. Oh, I loved it. It's such a good read. It's very, very well written. It's not because it's a big old thing. And you think, oh, crikey. No, I, got it. I think I got it for my 18th birthday. And I got that <laughs> in <James laughs> You to talk you sad boy. <laughs> well, I was very happy. <laughs> but I, I realised it was it, it may be sad um, getting that for your eighteenth, but I always wondered at the time. I wonder how much input Tony Blair had. Did you talk to him during the making of it? Were they receptive? Did they give you some access to family and friends? And how do you go about getting that?
2: Uh, well, I vividly remember um, approaching uh tony he was he was sitting having a cup of coffee with angie hunter uh, outside an event that he was about to do during the uh, leadership election in 1994 um where he was he was about to do this it was a rather sort of academic event actually about uh, about lone parenthood i think and the family or something like that anyway so i just i just sort of bounced up to him and said uh, i'm going to write a book about you uh and he said that's premature um and Uh, So you know, I was I was talking to him about it um, over that period, and you know, obviously after once once he was elected as leader, um, I I had uh, not sure if I had an interview with him before. Yeah, I must have had an interview with him before the book, but uh, you you know, and he said he said you can't uh, you can't talk to my family, Um, but you know I'll I'll be I'll be as helpful as I can, Um, and in the end, actually, I wrote to his dad. Um, and uh, and got a lovely long letter back telling me all sorts of uh, stories about the young Tony Blair, including the time he danced until his nappy fell down on, uh, <laughs> when he was three on the on the on the ship to Australia. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, it wasn't authorised, uh, but you know, I I sort of knew Tony Blair a bit, and he he cooperated warily.
1: How surreal is it, do you think, for a subject to? to- interact with the author of a biography about them if it's not if it's not you know officially authorized it must be a kind of i, I guess if you're a leading politician you're used to being written about but a biography feels like something else feels like a very personal thing
2: yeah no i mean it, it was very surreal it was very odd um interacting with him actually because i just felt you know here was, here was here was i just sort of assuming that i had the right to every aspect of his uh, of his life and you know i just thought that was a bit arrogant and uh i think he was he was a bit nervous about it because you know these things have you know there is a there is a tendency for them to go horribly wrong as uh michael gove could uh can, can tell i mean you know that book that was published that revealed um his 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 hard drug uh use uh during the tory leadership election i mean those are the sort of things that can go wrong so i can see why tony blair was was was, was very uh, nervous about it because I also I wasn't I wasn't a total uh, Blairite in those days. I mean, uh, you've, you've, as you have read the book, you'll know that a lot of it's quite critical of you. Um, uh, you know, I became much more pro Blair, uh, you know, during his time as Prime Minister than uh, than than I was at the start of it, which is the opposite trajectory to almost everybody else in the country, uh, which is another strange experience. Um, but I mean, the the most peculiar bit was was after the publication of the hardback the first hardback this is in 1995 he was leader of the opposition Um, and angie hunter arranged for him to to read it and and comment on it so um so he did and and he and he got someone to type up his comments but the the person typing up the comments couldn't read his handwriting so she gave up so angie Angie just gave me the book and i've still got it with tony blair's handwritten comments in the margins saying crap and uh you know this is <laughs> this is this is wrong and uh you know i never said that uh and then i had an and then i had a long uh, interview with him just to go through the book just to discuss it and just to sort of just discuss his comments uh which was which was when i felt that you know that i was a real sort of intruder in, into his life and i was uh, you know i was i was i was slightly embarrassed but it was it was it all worked out in the end
1: yeah i mean it's um as a sort of member of the public, you just expect biographies to be written of leading politicians and they're things that we like to read. But I guess the more we think about, particularly now, the pressures of public life, of uh, issues around privacy, it probably, you think, actually, do we have a right to know everything about the people who govern us? Where,
2: <laughs> is, where is the line? Yeah, well, that's, uh, I, I mean, the thing about Tony Blair is that there isn't, uh, There isn't much. I mean, there are some sort of quite embarrassing things about that he did when he was uh, when he was young, but not not really shocking. Um, I mean, you saw that in the the documentary, those awful photos of him with with no shirt on uh, and incredibly long hair. Uh, Remarkable stuff, really. Um, But, you know, in a way, very sort of quite sort of innocent sort of uh, sort of 70s alternative rock star. Uh, dreams. I mean, that was that was that was the most embarrassing stuff he did. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think we do have a right to know what our politicians are like. I mean, that's the whole point about writing biographies. That's why that's why the early bit of biographies I think is always the most interesting—the childhood, the parents, the sort of the formative experiences—and those I think we do have a right to know those because that is what makes uh, somebody's character and temperament and character so important in in a leadership role these days.
1: There's a kind of armchair theory, maybe it's more than that, about leading politicians and either some sort of tragedy, the loss of a parent or a sibling, or growing up with one parent for whatever reason is often a a drive. And as someone who was raised in a single-parent family, I've often thought it's kind of odd that I had a political drive very young and whether that was part of it. It's hard not to conclude that. And Tony Blair, obviously with his mum uh keir starmer you know once you start to look around you think actually even a lot of these politicians who um come from privileged backgrounds they do all share this thing that at an early age quite a big thing happens they lose a family member or a family yeah. member wasn't
2: there from the start
1: i mean is that it is is that a theory that that you think <laughs> is uh, sort of um accurate
2: yeah, no, I think I think it is. I think there's a lot to it, but I'm nervous about it because you know, obviously, it sounds a bit like pop psychology. Yeah, uh, and so I've I, I relegated it to a footnote. I mean, it is in the book somewhere about how uh, it's the phaeton theory, I think, named after some Greek uh, Greek god, um, about how um, uh, James Callahan, I think, lost his his father at a young age. Um, you know, I mean, if you, if you go back through prime ministers and, uh, and, and presidents, you know, there's an awful lot of uh, a, a, an awful, awful lot of them who have lost, a, lost a parent. Or in John Major's case, his, his father went bankrupt uh, when he was, I don't know, 9, 10, 11, something like that. That often happens. And in Tony Blair's case, it was his father uh, having a stroke at the age of when Tony, Tony Blair was 11. So, you know, these and, and that does seem to instill in people. Uh, a, a really strong desire to succeed, uh, uh, you, you know, on their on their father or their or their parents' behalf.
1: Yeah, because I always thought it sounded a bit. It's one of those things that you think, oh no, and then and then I remember seeing, you know, talking to Keir Starmer about it. When you think, well, actually, maybe sort of strange. It mm. keeps cropping up as a kind of, I guess, uh, perhaps overrepresented amongst political leaders that sort of experience.
2: Yeah, abs- uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it doesn't apply to all of them. I mean, you know, Boris Johnson, uh, you know, his dad's still around. I mean, his, his, his mother, um, you know, had some had some mental health problems, which must have been quite, uh, quite strange for a, for a young child. But I mean, it's not it's not quite the same way. Um, it's not quite the same thing as uh, sort of losing a parent. But I mean, uh yeah I mean, there's a, there's an awful lot of, of of trauma in in the early lives of a lot of uh, a, a lot of people who have that huge drive to get to the top
1: so at the time when you're when you're kind of studying blair as well as covering him as a journalist you're not necessarily a blairite right? you'd worked at the new statesman <laughs> in the 1980s you're at the independent just thinking about left-wing journalism at that time as compared to now do you think it was a, a in a kind of healthier shape
2: uh, oh I don't know um that's a that's a very difficult question uh, left-wing journalism I mean the independent was never wasn't particularly well yeah, yeah you know, I don't know if it was particularly left-wing when I when I joined um which was around the time um, uh, you know Tony Blair became leader and uh, uh, and then became prime minister I mean uh, yeah i mean the independent was quite pro pro blair um most most papers were because he was because he was a centrist because he was sort of uh, free market and a social conscience and all the rest of it uh so it was quite a good combination for a for a for a paper that was that was built on those sort of those values in the first place um but what we didn't have of course was uh was any any kind of um corbynism we, i mean benism had 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 gone and you know that 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 just didn't seem to be an issue so the the all the arguments on on the left were arguments between different different flavors of of what is now regarded and dismissed as centrism
1: and the new statesman in the 80s was christopher hitchens there at the time or was that uh,
2: no, that was before my time, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very old, but I'm not that old.
1: Because I used to, I mean, in the 90s, you know, the, the New Statesman was like, if other people were getting, you know, the NME or something like that, I was reading the New Statesman loved it I was just devouring it as a kind of 14, 15-year-old. And then, I don't know, maybe it's just because of the way politics has gone or, or the way we consume um, political writing now. But it felt like the new states in the 80s and 90s felt like a very, very exciting place to be.
2: Uh, yeah, well, I was I was there in the in the 80s. Um, and then I went then I went off to the BBC in the in the 90s. So, uh, um, yeah, it was I, I, it was great. I mean, I was uh, but I was always I was always cutting against the, the the culture slightly, although, you know, John Lloyd was the editor. For for a while then, and caused a huge stir by uh, attacking Neil Kinnock for um, for for sticking with unilateralism in the uh, 1987 election. Uh, so I was I was, you know, my politics was sort of forged in all those uh, in all those battles. Uh, but then, you know, it's, it's, everything changes when you, when you've got a Labour government, and especially if you've got a Labour government for a long time then everything is defined uh, in relation to what that Labour government does. And that's uh, and that's when politics moves on, because previously everything was defined uh, in relation to Margaret Thatcher.
1: It does feel, I remember at the time, that uh, of course um, you need critical friends. You shouldn't expect um, publications like The Guardian or perhaps now The Independent or The New Statesman to just agree with everything the government does. But I yeah. always felt... <laughs> even as a 15-year-old, kind of that the Labour government got a very hard time from yeah. uh, elements of, of uh, the media that perhaps should have been a bit more supportive. When I reflect on how new Labour's reputation got so trashed afterwards, it's hard not to conclude that a lot of that actually wasn't done by the Tories. It was done by people who really should have been a bit more supportive <laughs> of the one government they ever got.
2: <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, Tony Blair feels that very strongly, and uh, you know that that explains why. In that uh, one of the last lectures he gave as as Prime Minister, he had to go at the at the media, um, the feral beast tearing people to shreds. Uh, and of course, he named um, in, instead of naming the real object of his uh, of his hatred, which was the Daily Mail, which had been absolutely hideous to him throughout. Um, he, uh, being the big coward that he is, he, he backed off that and he, and he attacked the Independent instead uh, <laughs> on, on precisely the grounds that you, that, that you set out, which is that, you know, he, he felt that a, a, a centrist paper that was committed to, you know, free markets and social compassion at the same time ought to be uh, four square behind his, his government. And, you know, he found it incredibly irritating that, you know, the Guardian and the Independent uh, were so critical of him. Uh, so often uh, but he but what he really was upset about was was that was the Daily Mail I think um, you know that was uh, but but he felt that you know he couldn't take them on not even when he was Prime Minister even when he was about to stand down he didn't want to uh, invite them to trash him and his family any further I mean I think Cherie and uh, and, and his children had suffered enough uh, and he really didn't want to take them on and I can comp- uh, you know completely understand that
1: yes and I guess you have to choose your battles and you don't know where those battles are going to end. You know you're you, you <laughs> no. going to fight with uh, people that are perhaps prepared to go further than you are, and that's tricky. Um, just thinking about the new Labour and its its reputation since, obviously, so much of that is is the reason you do the course that you do. Um, not only was it uh, would it have had critical friends in the media, of course, and that's legitimate. It was at war with itself. In a way, I mean, I I guess if you think of the last few years of the Conservative Party, they were just at civil war, the Labour Party's in a perpetual state. I mean, (laughs) was the new Labour government particularly uh, riven compared to other governments? Or is it just that the Blair Brown thing is such a fascinating psychodrama that it it perhaps um, makes it appear more so?
2: No, I think all parties are divided. All governments have have, have their tensions um and the, and the Blair Brown relationship was was a very specific kind of relationship because of the personalities of the, of the of the two people involved. Now you know obviously a lot of people think that you know Tony Blair should have uh, should have got rid of Gordon Brown in 2001 uh, and he came came very close to doing that, I think um but I've always been persuaded by his his argument which he 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 doesn't make quite as explicitly as this but he says that you know if he'd done that then Gordon Brown would have gone to the back benches he would have uh, he, he would have um, rallied labor MPs behind him and Tony Blair would not have been prime minister for as long as he would have been otherwise and you know this this was Tony Blair's genius was his ability to just lead people on i mean you know he 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 dangled the carrot of leadership before Uh, Gordon Brown for so long I mean you know Ed Balls you know he he quite often says I don't know how explicit he is in the in the documentary but he you know Ed Balls was just totally fed up with the fact that you know Gordon Brown kept on buying this stuff and kept on saying no no we've got to wait Uh, and you know Tony Blair managed managed that relationship incredibly uh, effectively I mean obviously I think he should have carried on as prime minister for much longer than he did but you know, he was he was out of out of time with the Labour Party by then.
1: I guess the the thought of Gordon Brown on the backbenches once he'd been in government is so you can't picture it. And no. you also need really talented people in government. And he, for all the tensions between the two, it was such a huge figure that anyone else who was then chancellor. I remember I think it was in a previous documentary. I don't know whether it was Peter Mandelson or Alistair Campbell said this. Not so much about. Um, where else do you put Gordon? It's who else do you put in the Treasury that's then going to have the sort of the, the work permanently <laughs> marked by um, by the former Chancellor? And obviously, Alistair Darling found that when when yeah, was yeah quite Alistair. difficult.
2: Very well, Alastair Darling was yeah, I mean, Alastair Darling was a very good Chancellor in 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 many ways. I mean, you know, this idea that I mean, this is one of the great failings of, of Tony Blair is that he didn't bring on uh, talent. Um, enough. Um, I mean, there were lots of people who could have stepped up. Um, you know, David Miliband, obviously, uh, chief among them. But, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the idea that, you know, you couldn't move Gordon Brown because, you know, nobody else could be Chancellor. I mean, that's just nonsense. I mean, any, any anybody could have done that job. they give you the numbers.
1: Well, yeah. I mean,
2: I, I just remember
1: you know what? I'm now thinking, was it the other way around? Was it? It's not so much about who else you make chancellor? But where else do you put Gordon?
2: Yeah, well, oh, yes. I mean, doubting. obviously, I'm
1: now doubting putting him
2: as a, putting him as a, as foreign secretary. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have liked, and he probably. I don't, I, it's interesting. Would he have rejected that or not? I mean, uh, one of the striking things about the documentary is how closed Gordon Brown still is about you know questions like that. You know, he he doesn't really address them very directly. Uh, Although it is fascinating in the documentary, he does for the first time talk about the Granita deal um, and he does, you know, he does talk about the fact that he and Tony Blair didn't agree with each other all the time, Um, whereas previously he's always just tried to pretend that didn't exist.
1: What what do you think the Granita deal
2: was? Do you think it was explicit? I think... No, I think. I mean, I think Peter. I think is it Peter Mandelson says it in the documentary that you know one of Tony Blair's brilliant skills is 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 having people think that he agrees with them. Um, you know, people go into a meeting with Tony Blair, uh, and Tony Blair sort of smiles sweetly and, and nods and says yes, uh, and they come out thinking he's agreed. And of course he hasn't. And you know, I'm sure he would have said something like, you know, of course I don't want to. I don't want to be leader forever. Uh, and, you know, you're the obvious person to succeed me. Uh, And, you know, Gordon Brown comes out with thinking this is a cast-iron commitment to stand down after two elections. And, you know, that that is exactly how Tony Blair operates. But, I mean, it was also... I mean, it it worked, but it was also dangerous because it uh, led to those kind of misunderstandings and, uh, uh, and uh, you know, that tension did become destructive at the heart of government. It's really odd about that deal
1: whatever it was because on one hand you go well look these are guys who are basically equals and one was the senior partner for most of the time and i can understand how if the other guy then usurps him and stands that the bloke who really thought he was probably very close to becoming labor leader and prime minister then says well at some point you have gotta let me have a go because equally then you watch it as a citizen and go you cannot have the office of prime minister decided in this way no, so, at no. times I sort of lurch between going, I can totally understand how Gordon Brown would feel, and then going, hang on a second, how can two
2: people in a Democratic Party think that that's any way to carry on? Uh, it is, it is extraordinary, um, but the problem is that that's all happening in private, so you can't, you can't deal with it explicitly, uh, and that's that's that was Tony Blair's argument: was that he couldn't sack Gordon because what would he say to people? Because nobody knew what Gordon was 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 doing in private.
0: and they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. I
2: love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com/style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com/style
1: So as someone who I don't know how to I don't know how to word this. Would you describe yourself as a Blairite?
2: Oh, yes. I'm I'm, I'm totally a Blairite. I mean, I am you know, I'm more a Blairite now than I was um, at the start. I mean, I started, um, you know, wanting to write a book about Tony Blair because I thought he was such an interesting politician. I, I broadly agreed with him, obviously. Uh, but, you know, the more uh, I, I wrote about him and the more I saw of him in government, the more convinced I, I am. I'm absolutely a total Blairite. I think, I think the Blairite... Uh, verities are eternal, and uh, that all parties will come back to them. I think Boris Johnson is successful at the moment because he's a better Blairite than uh, than anybody else.
1: And what's your, how do you feel about Gordon Brown? I mean, I guess we've talked about this to some extent, but you you can't really take him out of the reason why New Labour was so successful and popular.
2: Oh, I think you can. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, okay, here we go uh no, I think, I think, economic credibility was, didn't he also um feel a bit more labor and that kept kind of traditional labor voters on side
2: well except i think john prescott did that um very well um or even better because i mean you know john prescott was much more uh, of authentic uh sort of traditional labor working class politician Um, No, I think I think just because Gordon Brown had a deep voice, people seem to assume he was, uh, you know, some great intellect. Um, I don't don't think I mean, you know, he was a very, very effective politician. No question about that. But I don't think he was actually essential to the success of New Labour. No, I think that was built entirely uh, on the personality of Tony Blair. And I think it was built by a team. Um, It was a it was a modernising Uh, agenda which um you know actually gordon brown acted as a break on but
1: things like the economy winning those arguments being able to know the detail of those things and and really uh, punish the tories on uh, on their weak points and independence of the bank of england i mean they all feel like very gordon things
2: yeah yeah, no, certainly at the, at the beginning uh, and independence of the Bank of England was w- was important, but somebody else could have done that. Uh, you know, and Tony Blair, you know, I can't uh, I won't pretend that he was a, uh, an accomplished economist. But then I mean, I don't think Gordon Brown I- is particularly I mean, Ed Balls uh, was really the power behind Gordon Brown. He was really Gordon Brown's economic brain. Uh, and Ed Balls was the one who drafted the letter, who set, who, who, who set up that policy. Uh, and Tony Blair agreed with it. I mean, it was, you know, I'm, you know, obviously Gordon Brown was part of the team, and you know, he did act as a sort of counterweight, which sometimes was useful. But I mean, I I agree with Douglas Alexander, who used to be regarded as a Brownite, and who says in the documentary that after 2001, certainly the relationship became destructive and uh, and, and unhelpful to the to the government. I think it actually had be, had been that. Pretty much all along, but uh, it certainly was after 2001. The
1: other man in that three, um, <laughs> I was going to say three <laughs> summer, you know, the, 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 the third man. Triangle, the third man is Peter Mandelson. Um, and there's that really interesting bit. And obviously, it's something I've talked to um, Peter Mandelson about on this show, but Tony Blair's Prime Minister, Gordon Brown is Chancellor, he's a minister without portfolio.
2: That's very difficult yeah. for him. Yeah, he didn't like it one little bit, because uh, actually, I think Peter Mandelson understood that he would make a very good departmental minister. And he did. I mean, when he was when he actually took over uh, trade and when he ran uh, Northern Ireland, you know, his attention to detail and his work rate and his just political nous. Uh, made him one of the most exceptional ministers uh, of of that government and you know the real test of that is is the fact that civil civil servants absolutely loved working for him because he was clear uh he was decisive um and he was you know he was he was a joy to work for um and it's you know one of the great shames of of the government that uh that he had to go and such a
1: talented communicator really funny and yes. likable, you know, great on TV as a minister. You think, well, that's someone who perhaps should have had a bit of a more senior role from the start.
2: Yes, I think. I think again, that's one of uh, one of Tony Blair's weaknesses was that he didn't promote people early enough, and uh, he made he made that mistake very early on in sticking with the elected shadow cabinet and just translating all them all of those shadow ministers into into actual ministers when. You know, he could have got he could have got ahead of events and and really started promoting people early. And he didn't uh, he didn't promote uh, he didn't promote enough young uh, ministers I- I- enough, um, which I think would have changed um, would have changed the nature of the government later on. And he shouldn't have got rid of Peter Mandel. I mean, can you imagine? You know, Boris Johnson in this in a similar situation. You know, Peter. You know, some minister um is is, is accused of, of of interfering in a in a passport application for a for, for an indian uh business person um you know peter mandelson uh, you know would have would have stayed on in, in in any other government i mean you know it just shows that you know tony blair was was quite a stickler for uh for for, for standards i think he should have uh, he should have forgiven him and one of the most uh striking moments in the in the tv documentary is when uh the camera lingers on uh, on Peter Mandelson. He's asked about that. He's obviously still very, very deeply upset about it.
1: It does seem an odd contradiction that New Labour, as a philosophy, is about constant renewal, about always yeah. changing with the times, always turning over. And yet, in terms of personnel, that wasn't necessarily the same way. Yeah. Bringing talent through and re- always renewing wasn't um, wasn't the done thing.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was inexperience. I mean, I do think that was one of the ways in which the fact that Tony Blair had never had a, had, had a job in government um, really held him back. It took him, it took him a while to get the hang of, of, of how government works. I mean, what's astonishing is how much he achieved in his first term as prime minister, considering that he didn't even, you know, prime minister was his first and only job in government. He'd never been a minister. Uh, and yet he came in and he did all those huge changes. He solved Northern Ireland, which had defeated all his predecessors, back to Gladstone. And, uh, you know, he still had, he had so much more in his tank to give once he once he actually started to grasp how the machinery of government actually worked.
1: Do you ever think, I mean, you can't help but feel this when you watch these sorts of documentaries, you think, well, they're so good, and they're still full of beans. I mean, yeah. obviously, it's it's almost like rumours of an Oasis reunion. You're like, oh, God, is Tony <laughs> Blair going to come back? <laughs> is there any? Is there or has there been any circumstance since he left, do you think, where a chance of him coming back was in any way remotely possible?
2: No, I'm afraid not. I mean, I think I think politics has just just changed utterly fundamentally, Matt. I mean, you know, in the in the 19th century, maybe, or even in the sort of first half of the 20th century, it was possible for uh ministers to 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 stop being ministers to go and do other things to go and read novels and go and shoot some grouse and then come back and be a minister again and it was possible for prime ministers to step down and come back and you know alec douglas hume um you know this was in the 1960s he was he was prime minister not for very long but i mean then he came back as foreign secretary um and that wasn't that long ago but i mean you know those those days those days have gone i just don't think uh the way the media and 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 the house of commons works these days that that kind of thing is possible
1: yeah i mean i i, I agree it's just one of those things where you think i wonder if it has i wonder if it ever got further than just <laughs> but also, chat.
2: i mean you and i are, are not the best people to talk about this because we, we we constantly have to remind ourselves how uh, how unpopular tony blair uh, still is with with very large uh, sections of the population i mean you know it's not it's it's not just the labor party um you know the general public had had enough of him by the time it, he 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 stood down and uh you know that's that's a terrible shame and it's wrong but it is a fact of life
1: do you think in time that that opinion will change do you think incrementally he becomes more popular again
2: well that was that was our hope when we uh when we set up the, the course on the Blair years, immediately after Tony Blair stood down. And I have to say, <laughs> the early years of teaching that course were a constant disappointment because we thought, you know, they're bound to, you know, we're bound to get people to see sense, to sort of change, to realize that actually that was a decent modernizing social democratic government. Uh, and yet, you know, for the first, first five, six years of, of teaching that course, every year Tony Blair became more and more hated. Uh, and uh, you know, it, it it just became more and more difficult. I mean, it wasn't really until I suppose the Brexit mode uh, that things started to change, because I mean, he turned out to be one of the most articulate exponents of the uh, of the Remain case, uh, and there were a lot of people in the Labour Party, obviously, who hated him, uh, who, who who were prepared to give him a second uh, hearing because of that. And you know, since then, he's actually been. Uh, been increasingly rehabilitated, mainly because people have been spending so much time hating David Cameron and Nick Clegg and uh, other people instead. Yes.
1: And the, I mean, there's no blueprint for former prime ministers. There's not the same infrastructure that America has with former presidents. They're not still called prime minister after they leave. There's not that sense of... No. They were public servants, and therefore they operate in a particular
2: space. It's yeah, I bumped themselves. into I bumped into Theresa May in uh, in Parliament the other day, and I very nearly said, uh, "Hello, Prime Minister." Uh, you you feel you want to sort of call them that, but uh, you know, I
1: didn't. I <laughs> <laughs> didn't feel it strongly enough. Um, John, as one well as writing these brilliant political books. You've also written a couple of other books. um, The Band List and Questions to Which the Answer is No. (laughs) Now, there's so much fun on social media. Your Twitter feed for a while, Questions to Which the Answer is No is such a great great thing to think about. I mean, I I know you've done so many, but do do any favourites immediately spring to mind? And why did you
2: uh, start doing it? Why did I start doing it? Well, I tell you, I mean, the, the, the sort of boring, uh, bigger reason is that it was, you know, after Tony Blair stood down as Prime Minister, I thought, you know, that's the that's the end of me, really. Um, you know, there's no there's no no um, no real point, uh, because you know, I used to get an awful lot of uh, uh, of interview requests from uh, from broadcasters sort of come on as a Blairite and defend Tony Blair because there weren't many people doing that at the time once he stepped down I thought well that's all going to end actually it didn't end because people were still interested in Tony Blair and there was the Chilcot inquiry and all the rest of it that went on um but I also th- thought well you know I'll just I'll just tinker about on social media I'll just tinker about on Twitter and uh, and do that instead um and uh, of course it turned out to be uh, it turned out to be great fun and turned out actually to be to be a way of of continuing me as a journalist because I was one of the first uh, on on Twitter, luckily because some uh, bright people at the Independent had put me put me on Twitter when it was when it was very young, um, and so that all that all worked. And uh, I can't remember questions the answer, and answer is no. Just sort of just sort of emerged. It just sort of became one of those really silly things. I mean, Oliver Cam, I think of the Times was was the one who actually coined the term but then I just as soon as you it's one of those things where you get the idea as soon as you get the idea you keep seeing these questions to which the answer is no in the headlines and uh, in the media all over the place and especially in the Daily Mail I mean most of the questions I mean in the early days most of the questions were you know is 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 is, is the net closing around Tony Blair you know, <laughs> It was just it just it was just a wonderful way of poking fun at that kind of nonsense is this the most
1: dangerous man in Europe <laughs> yeah exactly famous headline <laughs> Because so I remember it was only its just sometimes I remember reading Andrew Marr's book, My Trade, talking about journalism. And um, I, I guess I was fairly young when I was reading it, but I'd, I'd never um, thought of it before. And he says in there, if a headline's a question, the answer's always no. And I just thought, like, do, <laughs> yeah. because otherwise, it, you know, do cabbages cause cancer would be cabbages cause cancer. It would, yeah, wouldn't need exactly. to answer the question. So it's just a really good way of, I guess, giving those of us who aren't journalists an insight into how the trade works and how to kind of... As a as a reader, understand what a headline's trying to do and, and the reason why it's framed in a particular way. So it's yeah. good fun, but it actually serves a purpose. Yeah, I
2: suppose I, I suppose that's right. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't trying to serve an educational purpose particularly. I was I was just trying to to, to poke fun at the at the Daily Mail because uh, you know I, I did regard. I mean, I totally agree with Tony Blair that uh, Paul Dacre was one of the most sort of baleful influences on uh, on public life and i'm quite glad he's not editor of the daily mail anymore
1: the band list um also feels like a, a kind of for someone who is a journalist in politics that it would be rich pickings it's basically a war on cliches and meaningless jargon it yeah. must be very hard for you then if you ever find yourself using the sort of phrase you would put on the band list
2: yeah, no, well, it's, a, it's an absolute nightmare doing radio interviews because, of course, when you're when you're being interviewed, uh, as as I am now, you know, you don't have time to think of of a different phrase, so you 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 find yourself blundering into using cliches all, all all the time. But there is no excuse in written journalism because it only takes half a second. Uh, you know, if you're writing, at least you've got the time to just sort of steer clear of the uh, of, of the cliches, like so you know. Sort of, it's the economy stupid. That, I seem to remember it's the economy stupid was one of the ones that, that started it all, because, you know, such a I mean, you don't hear it so 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 often now, but it's such a cliche. And the thing that really got me was that it's wrong, because what James Carville wrote on the whiteboard in the war room of the Clinton 1992 campaign was the economy stupid. Um, it, it wasn't it's. So everybody gets it wrong, and uh, you know that's that's the sort of thing
1: that just drives me up the wall. And just thinking about politics, what are the phrases that drive you mad? <laughs> well, leveling up is uh, is
2: quite. A... <laughs> um, I mean, but 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 Boris Johnson's good at them, isn't he? I mean, that's the that's. I mean, he's you know, he's both very good at politics and very bad at it. Actually, I mean that is the uh, that's the thing about Boris Boris Johnson. I mean. Uh, uh, and yet, you know, he's, he's he he has used Brexit so uh, so ingeniously to uh, to just divide uh, to divide and rule to, to 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 reshape British politics. I mean, the extraordinary way in which Brexit has has inverted the class assumptions of politics. I mean, Labour is now a more middle class. I mean, the Labour vote is more middle class than the Tory vote at the last election. I mean, it's just quite extraordinary that. I mean, you know, <laughs> of course, the, the joyous irony for, for someone like me is that, of course, this happened under, under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. I mean, you know, the, the the one leader who venerates this ridiculous, mythological ideal of the working class is the one who managed to turn the Labour Party into... Uh, into, into some kind of ridiculous sort of student, middle-class uh, establishment party.
1: I, I Some of the ones of the last few years, squeezed middle, drove me mad. Just Squeezed about man- middle, yeah. <laughs> just about managing... I mean, Labour have revived the phrase, the cost of living crisis. And I just don't think that... Just instinctively. I don't think it's punchy enough. I don't think it's... No. I, I don't think it's a bullet. Do you know what I mean? I don't think it cuts through. I don't think it... Like tax bombshell is such a good phrase, had it not yeah. been used before. But cost of living crisis, just there's something about the order <laughs> of those words. And the word, it, it just it, it fails <laughs> to land for me.
2: I don't know whether it. I don't know whether it does for you. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. I mean, and that's another reminder of the immense trouble and care and effort that went into crafting messages and slogans uh, under under New Labour um i mean there's a wonderful bit in the documentary where they're talking about the you know whether to go for for new labor as as the title and whether whether the n in new labor should be a capital n or a lowercase n because you know is it a new party or is it just a sort of description uh, of, of a changing old one um i mean these things really matter and uh you know that's uh, you know that's what uh, what tony blair was was good at i mean the uh, the pledge card was a was was a most effective piece of politi- political communication. Are there any New Labour slogans that would make it onto the band list? <laughs> oh yeah, no, there, there were lots of lots of dreadful ones. I think it was New Labour really that started all this stakeholder nonsense. Mm. Um, I think uh, you know that that kind of sort of bureaucratic uh, phrase making really swept through government. I mean, I remember, uh, I mean, when I when I started doing the band list, I remember getting. Getting all these contributions from 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 uh, labour civil well civil servants working for the Labour government and and Labour ministers. I mean James Purnell, um, I remember when he was uh, when he was a minister, sort of contributed all his sort of pet hates. I mean it was uh, it was fascinating. He didn't like um, I can't I can't remember what they all were, but I mean it was things like stakeholders and uh, and all that kind of uh, sort of bureaucratic jargon.
1: Yeah, that's because the problem is if you say what what is a stakeholder? (laughs) I remember someone asking me once, I was like, well, you know, you just kind of, it just became used in, in, you know, political public sector circles at the time. You'd say, oh, just let the stakeholders know. (laughs) I kind of knew what they meant. We had a list, but I was like, if you were to ask me to define what a stakeholder is, I'd be like, I guess people who are
2: interested in what we do would, yeah, anyone who has an interest in what yeah. the government is—I mean, it's a bit. Yeah, I mean, the problem is it's a bit. It leans into you know lobbyists who uh, uh, who have a vested interest in, uh, in in trying to persuade the government to do things.
1: Yes, that's probably a conversation for another time. Um, John, let me be clear: it has been a real. Um, <laughs> you are the best of us, and um, it's been. <laughs> Great to add some more stakeholders to this podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Very good. Thank you
2: very much. I've absolutely uh, loved it. Thank you. Well, there you go,
1: John Rental. Man, I'd love to do that course. I felt like saying to him, can I just come and do that? I mean, I'm not sure what merit there'd be in me doing it. I think I'm fairly uh, genned up on that period in history anyway. But you think... I'd love to do just tag along some modern history courses i mean obviously it would cost me thousands of pounds um but I'd love to sit in on one maybe i can convince him that it's for uh kind of promotional reasons and he can waive the fee universities do that right maybe not but his biography of tony blair is superb um as is heroes or villains um and he's worth following on social media he's a great commentator very funny um and a brilliant guest And just so timely. You have to watch. I mean, if you've already watched it, you'll know why. It is magnificent. I've only seen the first two episodes. But it is. It's not the Oasis film. It's not Supersonic or the Nedworth film, but for New Labour. It gets just the balance right. It's not nostalgia for the sake of it. Really well used archive footage with exceptional interviews with really brilliant talkers. You really I mean not that it was ever in doubt, but Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, Peter Mandelson, Alistair Campbell are very good and all the other people in there as well. Christopher Mayer and Ed Balls and so many others, Angie Hunter. People who can really talk and really That's amazing. Just the personal drama of it, let alone the history. Anyway i am spending more time promoting on the iPlayer than on my own stuff. Don't forget to come to the Duchess Theatre, the new home of the political party. It's no longer at the other Palace Theatre. It's at the Duchess Theatre from now on. Every fortnight instead of every month. And the next one in a few days' time. Monday the 11th of October. Reacting to Conservative Party conference. Um, and uh, about so many more things as well. The hilarious Penny Mordaunt. Who is tipped to be a prime minister of the future, and I think it's always special to come tonight where you're seeing a perhaps a, a current, future, you know, current star, but someone who clearly has um, a bit of way to go yet on the ladder. So um, come and see Penny Morden before she becomes our third female prime minister. Tickets for that show available at mattford.com/live. Thank you so much for downloading this. Please leave a five-star review and a written review if you can on iTunes. It just helps it get up the charts. Tell your friends. Tell everyone you care about to download this show and I'll see you soon. ta
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.